Apples! Oh, look! I love that scene from The Wizard of Oz. Ouch! What do you think you're doing? There's something magical about trees that has always captured our imaginations. We've been walking a long ways and I was hungry and... Did you say something? She was hungry. Our fascination with trees isn't surprising considering that there are more than three trillion of them on this planet. That's about 422 trees per person. We write songs about them, feature them in our stories and bring them to life, literally in our movies. Well, how would you like to have someone come along and pick something off of you? Oh, dear. It's talking, Mary. The tree is talking. Tree? I am no tree. Oh, God, that tree is talking to me. Then you should talk back. I talk to trees once in a while. I'm not even sure why. In fact, I'm standing in a forest not too far from my home on the northern edge of Washington State. I come here to get away and to connect with nature and to be under the trees. Usually when I'm in the forest, I, I look to the sky, see if there's any birds or animals in the branches. I think it comes naturally to all of us to look up at those branches or to just listen to the leaves in the breeze. But today, we're going to turn our gaze toward the ground, underneath the leaves and twigs, to see how trees really can talk to each other. And they do it by using the largest communication network in the world. It's time to go subterranean. From KUW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. I love it to be in a forest after a first rain. Me too. Yes. About it, there? Oh, there is. This is one of my. I, I like to think wow. of this as my grandfather it's tree. It's amazing. It's beautiful, isn't it? Look at that. This is Dr. Teresa Ryan. She's a researcher at the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences at the University of British Columbia. I've hiked through this forest a hundred times, but I wanted to learn more about the trees that stared down at me during my long walks. So I've asked Teresa to join me today. I started by showing her one of my favorite trees. Every time I walk past it, I, I give it a hug or at least a stroke. And I, but I've never done it with anyone else before, so <laughs> both do it. join me, would yes. you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll go up on the high end. It's just a big, oh, beautiful, God. old, big leaf maple and all of these licorice, licorice ferns. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, the stories that you could tell. Yeah. yeah. The things this tree must mm -hmm. have seen and witnessed, huh? Beautiful. Teresa shares my love of trees, not only because she's studied them, but she's also a member of the Simsian. They're an indigenous people of the Pacific Northwest Coast, and they share a close connection to the forest. Still some young deciduous trees here, so this area actually has, has been, within the last 50 years, this area was probably logged or disturbed or something. Yeah. Because this, this is still a young forest. And you can see the younger cedar over there. The Simsian call the cedar the tree of life. Hands down, it is the most important tree because it provides us with our housing, our transportation in canoes, our totem poles, and all of our clothing was out of cedar. 
our masks that we use in ceremonies was out of cedar. Our boxes to hold our belongings were out of cedar to store our food. The tree of life, yes, it provided for everything. Everything, yeah. So, um, how did you discover science? How did your world of being a First Nations young woman suddenly turn into becoming a scientist as well? Was, that a, was there a point? Yes, uh, my grandfather. Teresa's dream was to become a fighter pilot. Yeah, fighter jet pilot. <laughs> I like the speed. I was a ski racer at the time. But Teresa had some health issues and realized early on that flying jets probably wasn't in the cards. So her grandfather sat her down one day and told her that they needed her to become a fisheries scientist. Fish are an essential part of the Simsian way of life. So she said yes. Today, Dr. Teresa Ryan's expertise is the relationship between fish and forests. And it's relationships like this that Teresa sees everywhere in the forest, like the cedar trees that we're standing in front of now. They have a relationship with maples, like my grandfather tree, which are deciduous, and these cedars, which are coniferous. They love to grow up in these shaded areas where the deciduous trees have grown first, and then the conifers will come up underneath it because mm. the conifer, the deciduous trees will protect the young conifer trees until they're strong enough to release and go up to the for their own sunlight right and then mm -hmm. they they take over the space but it's another symbiotic relationship that's evolved in these forests so that's above ground all of this lovely foliage yes. and everything that we see now we're sitting down here so mm -hmm. what like if we were to <laughs> ramage around Sorry, a foot underground yeah. what, what now what do you see we've got layers and layers and layers of, of history in these soils mm -hmm. and it's absolutely amazing the deciduous trees are the key players in these layers of history as winter approaches the deciduous trees, like my grandfather, drop their leaves to conserve energy as the weather gets colder. These leaves blanket the forest floor and start decomposing. And as they decompose, they're releasing nutrients. And the trees need nutrients, right, to survive, but they can't access those nutrients by themselves. They rely on a shuttle, if you will. There's a relationship going on underground with tree root systems associated with fungus. The leaves that have fallen to the ground contain glucose, made by photosynthesis. And if there's one thing that fungus loves, it's glucose, sugar. In exchange for this sugar, the fungus gives the tree roots essential nutrients like water and carbon and nitrogen. Think of it as a giant underground barter system. And this fungus is made up of tiny white filaments that all together make up something called the mycorrhizal network. It's as far out as the roots go, so do the mycorrhizal networks. Wow. Fungus, it's a fungus root, mycorrhiza, and they are just extending throughout this whole forest as well. Mm -hmm. That's also been mapped with using DNA technology. So it's using science as well, right, um, in every form that we know that's available to us in looking at these relationships. So from, from a, an Aboriginal or Indigenous view, Science is catching up with what we already know mm -hmm. about these connections in the forest. Mm -hmm. And this cool. mycorrhizal network mm -hmm. um, sounds like something from the world of high tech, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome yeah. to the mycorrhizal yeah. network. <laughs> Broadband. <laughs> it, it extends throughout an entire forest. Yes. 
A tree's root system is twice the size of its crown, so this fungal mycorrhizal network connecting these roots is massive. To put this into perspective, one teaspoon of soil contains several miles of fungal filaments. One of the things that uh, our students have found is that these networks, when they exchange nutrients, where they pass along or transmit the nutrients, they will favor their own seedlings. Mm. They'll still distribute to other seedlings, but they favor their own seedlings. That's so why we call these dominant trees the mother tree. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah. The mother tree. The mother tree. So, so there is your a... grandfather, but we'll call her a mother. <laughs> Maybe it's my grandmother from now on. I like that. grandfather, though. You know, it's, we don't, it's, it's not one way or the other. These guys, though, are they're the guardians of everything that's a legacy in the forest. Now, this might sound like fantasy, big trees watching over and caring for the little ones, but it's all happening through this incredible mycorrhizal network. Researchers have even studied what happens when a mother tree is being cut down. This is really amazing. This is cutting-edge technology that we're seeing. When we cut the trees down, they're shuttling their carbon immediately through the root systems, particularly to their seedlings. It's like just shuttling off everything that you've got. Here, take it, take it, take it. I, something's going on, I don't know what's going on. Take everything I've got. And it's a legacy that she's leaving to her, her seedlings to give them a chance at growing. A mother tree sacrificing herself for her seedlings. Trees also use this network to communicate and warn other trees when danger is approaching. It's something that the journal Nature has dubbed the Wood Wide Web. After a short break, I'm going to talk to Peter Wallerman, a forester and author who's dedicated his life to understanding this Wood Wide Web and the fascinating underground world of trees. Hey, wild listeners, I'm Lucy Suchak, a producer on The Wild. I want to introduce you to another show you might like. Out There is an award-winning podcast about regular people whose lives have changed because of an experience with nature. A while back, we had an episode about the quietest place on Earth. The new season of Out There is all about silence. They'll explore how we find stillness amidst the noise of life. The new season of Out There launches in April. Follow them wherever you get your podcasts or at outtherepodcast.com. There is still a lot we don't know about how trees communicate with each other. But Peter Wallerman has closely followed the latest research and written about what scientists are learning in his book, The Hidden Life of Trees. I caught up with Peter by phone. He's in a remote part of Germany. He immediately started telling me about how much he envied our old growth forests in the Pacific Northwest. You're lucky because you know uh, old growth forests, and um, uh, because in Germany we don't have any left. Uh, we have some older trees, and that means that we have trees as old as 200 years. I love I love old forests because you can feel the magic, and I think that's um, a very important thing, uh, which is missing in many scientific reports or fact-based sheets, whatsoever, that are the emotions. Peter's love for trees came from an unexpected place. For 20 years, he worked as a forester in Germany. When he first took the job, he thought he was going to take care of the trees, kind of like a forest shepherd. But he found that a lot of his work required cutting down trees 
he became a self-described tree butcher. But one day, he was asked to cut down a dying birch tree, and as that tree fell to the ground, something changed in him. And when the tree came down, and with a certain sound, which is really not nice, and was bleeding afterwards with a lot of water, I thought, oh no, that's a big living organism. And I was almost crying. And that was the moment where I said, no, I can't go on treating forests like this. So he started writing about them, writing about trees, in a way that takes complex ideas and theories and strips them down to their essence to make trees understandable for the rest of us. For example, the idea that trees actually communicate with one another. How does one tree know that another tree needs help? There are interesting theories about that. We know that in the root tips that there are brain-like structures. In those root tips, there are brain-like processes going on, hewn on electrical and chemical ways, like in our brain, sometimes with the same molecules. And uh, wow. every root tip would make a different decision that would be crazy, so they work together, we don't know so far how they coordinate, but perhaps it's just a guess. This is the brain of a tree. We, we, we saw it in the movie Avatar. I call these trees Utrayamokri, the tree of voices. The voices of our ancestors. James Cameron, I think he, he knows a lot about that research because this mother tree uh, there has many abilities uh, which we uh, found in reality in trees. You make me want to go and watch Avatar again. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. so interesting. What you were just saying just makes you think that we become so self-obsessed as humans. We always think of a human brain and if there's, if there's a creature or a species or an organism that doesn't have something constructed like a human brain, how can it be intelligent? But you're saying that these trees have some kind of intelligence. Yeah, perhaps we regard another being um, before judging trees. Communication between trees is not just one way. It's a two-way conversation sent back and forth through a series of electrical and chemical signals. For example, trees are warning each other from insect attacks uh, or heavy droughts and so they can prepare each other uh, in advance. Peter brings up a study from the University of Leipzig in Germany that followed how trees warn each other and help each other defend against predators like deer. A deer is feeding on little beech trees. Then the, the little tree is able to judge by the saliva of the deer, ah, that's a deer. And then uh, it pumps poisonous substances in the leaves and is warning its companions. Surrounding wow little beach uh, saplings. The deer saliva triggers warnings. These warnings are sent with electrical signals from tree to tree across the mycorrhizal network that Teresa Ryan talked about, the wood wide web. But this way of communicating does have a downside. It's slow. Think about the days of dial-up modems. In the case of the deer eating the leaves, the leaf that's gnawed on emits a signal. That signal then moves through the branch, down the trunk, then underground through the root system to the next tree. Then the signal travels to the new tree, up the trunk, out to the branches, and onto the new leaves. It takes a long time, but some trees 
have developed a faster way to communicate. Through scent. Yep, scent. Peter says scientists discovered this while observing giraffes feeding on acacia trees. Now, if you're a giraffe, you love acacia leaves. Scientists found out that giraffes are just feeding for some minutes on this acacia tree, and then this, the tree is bringing poisonous substances into the leaves, really deadly substances. These substances released into the leaves not only make them taste bad, but they also make the leaves harder for giraffes to digest. The scientists watched the giraffes and noticed something was making the giraffes move on to the next acacia tree. Then they found out that the tree, uh, the tree which, which the uh, giraffes feed on, warned the other trees by um, uh, gassing out chemicals which are some, something like a chemical warning yell. And once a neighboring tree catches the scent of the chemical warning, it sends out the poisonous substances to its own leaves. The scientists learned about the chemical gassing because they observed that the giraffes started to feed upwind of the tainted trees. That's because chemicals released by the original tree could only travel downwind. That was the first time scientists uh, discovered the communication between trees. Trees can communicate through scent, taste, electrical signal, and now Peter says that scientists think they can even communicate through sound. 220 hertz to be exact. That's the frequency of flowing uh, water in the underground. And uh, that's a signal which uh, trees or roots love because yeah, water is the most necessary element uh, beside air. And so trees are able to, to hear, let's say here, this sound of the beloved water. And they are even able to hear if other roots make sounds in this frequency. And uh, we don't know what they are telling each other, but uh, we know that they are able <laughs> to make active click sounds in this frequency. That is amazing. So a tree hears the frequency of water at 220 hertz, and then it can potentially communicate that source of water and availability of water to another tree of the same species or perhaps even different ones. And okay, I've got a fun experiment here. Dave, the engineer in, in, in here, Peter, has an app where he can play 220 ah. hertz. Dave, have you got that? Mm, where are, wow. um, what's your tone like, Peter? Can you mimic that? To think that those trees are communicating at, at, using that, that frequency and the information that they are sharing with each other. I just, my next walk yeah. through the forest is going to feel very different, Peter. <laughs> yeah, and, and perhaps when you, when you play this, this sound for an hour, it's just the first name of the tree. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. There's so much more after that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Even if my 220 hertz was a little off, it seems like there is just as much going on under the ground when it comes to a forest as above ground. In fact, maybe the most important part of a tree is what we can't see. A tree is um, its like uh, standing uh, on its head with a head in the soil. And uh, <laughs> it's, the tree is standing with a feet up in the sky. <laughs> Makes total and, sense, uh, yeah. So... <laughs> so I think the more important or, or interesting things are go, uh, ongoing in the soil. But our problem is we are uh, a species which is uh, living on top of the soil. And for us, it's really hard to imagine 
uh, how living in the soil could be. We think it's, it may be boring to live the, the whole life on, on a certain place without moving, but a tree is moving with its, its roots. They are growing in this direction, perhaps next year in this direction, and they are hmm. uh, exchanging news with a birch tree, perhaps next time with a neighboring Douglas fir, or with the grass, we don't know if trees are also communicating with the grass because there's no research about this. Amazing. You know, the passion in your voice for these stories and these trees, this has become, you have evolved so much further than being a tree butcher. It's so clear. <laughs> so we're learning about tree communication. We're learning about tree families. What can we learn from trees as humans? From trees, we can learn um, patience. Second, and even more important thing is be social. Because just as a community, you're able to be strong, you're able to survive uh, even bad things in your life. So um, that's that are the two big things I learned. Be slow and be social. <laughs> be slow and be social. Good lessons from the forest. I love that. Yeah. The wind is, is through the trees now. It's, it's, it's talking to nice? us, right? Yeah, that's yeah. a lovely sound. It is. I'm back at my local forest, sitting on a tree stump among the cedars with Dr. Teresa Ryan, the researcher. For her, the way trees communicate with each other resonates with her Native American heritage and background as a scientist. She sees trees as living beings. These trees in here, in this forest that we're sitting in, are communicating with each other. They could be talking about us right now. <laughs> I <laughs> we love don't that. know what they're saying, <laughs> yeah. right? They are beings, and that's we have to respect that. There's a heart-to-heart -heart conversation that goes on with me mm. in the forest, and I just want to do what I can to protect them, to nurture them, to to make sure that they're a part of the future, so that they have a future. What's interesting to me is the deep influence trees have had on Teresa and on Peter Wallaben. Peter, a former logger turned tree advocate, and Teresa, a researcher who leans on her Native American roots. She has a foot in both worlds science and spirituality. It seems like the trees have spoken to them both. I get it. When I'm in a forest like this, I never feel alone. And perhaps it's because I'm surrounded by a huge community of individuals that are quietly cooperating, looking out for each other, in ways we're only just beginning to understand. I think we sometimes make the mistake of thinking humans are the master networkers, but these trees, I look at them a little differently now and think about what we can learn from the world in their forest beneath my feet. We have a link to Peter Wallaben's book, The Hidden Life of Trees, on our website, thewildpod.org. I hope you're enjoying our latest season of The Wild. We love creating it, and we want to do more. 
To keep taking you on adventures into the wild, we need your support. If you're able, please consider making a financial donation to our home, KUOW Public Radio. You'll find the link in the episode description. On the next episode of The Wild, we'll learn about an animal that is so tough and frightening. It's used to chase away grizzly bears. The Karelian Bear Dog. They are incredibly intelligent, primitive dog that has not been bred to serve man. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. We have more information on our website, thewildpod.org. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle in partnership with my work at Chris Morgan Wildlife. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. Our production team includes David Brown, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Dia Roxley, Tio Popescu, Maria Powell, Brendan Sweeney, Jeannie Yandel. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks for listening. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.